Hello everyone, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. Like always, we really hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello and my name is Ashling. Thank you so much for joining us again if you are listening to one of our podcasts and today I always say this Gemma I just love our guests but today in particular I love our guests but actually a very good pal of us who was on an earlier episode who's a marine forecaster Alexi <laughs> also loves our guest as well and we are so delighted Nick Preble thank you so much for joining us on the podcast you are a meteorologist but also the very first person that I met from the Merseyside area and oh my goodness what an incredible accent that you have <laughs> you bring laughter and light to any weather forecasting shift and I was lucky enough as was Gemma to work with you for a time and we're so delighted that you're here with us today so thanks for joining but currently Nick works for the Environment Agency but he did used to work with me and Gemma on night shifts in the cup of tea run and all got a couple of stories it. about Nick I'm sure you, Nick they might pop oh. out we'll see he's it's a like father a now we'll have to <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you very much guys i'm going to try and consciously put on my posh side voice for this uh, podcast <laughs> now Lick, we just love you just the way you are so just just, just <laughs> i tried i tried my posh voice during the first episode or two and it, it hasn't lasted <laughs> did you <laughs> oh thanks thanks ash <laughs> i thought i had like my posh my posher <laughs> london voice on but maybe not uh that's really funny because to me uh like you know, I don't have an accent, you have the accent. So it's just really funny that you were trying to change your accent. Like, I don't, I don't know. We've got, three, we've got three strong accents on the podcast today. Yeah, it's going to be good I'm, when I'm I can feel different. it. I'm feeling the vibes. I'm very proud that, especially um, Ash, you, you and me, we haven't um, waned in our accents, um, even I even see. being in the, the, I know. the deep south. Of, like, of it's mad. Like, you know, all these years later, I mean, I, th- I think I must occasionally say stuff that, are you you probably like me where maybe you moderate your language a bit just for little local words like I'm trying to think of an example. Oh my goodness. So the expression giving out in Ireland means so many things. And I've used it over here and people have no idea what I'm talking about. So like, so you've got new baby Nick at home. If they were crying, we'd say, Oh, why are you giving out? Oh, what's wrong with you? Equally, if somebody like your boss or something had a go at you, say, Oh my gosh, he was giving out to me he was having a go at me so there is all these little things that maybe I don't use as much but in general the accent just doesn't seem to have gone I noticed a lot of these um sort of isms if you like from our Irish contingents that Meteor mm. Group I mean yeah, we did have a, a couple of colleagues from Dublin um over the years as well mm-hmm. and so, yeah it was it was fascinating because they, they would use it very casually like they like they always would in conversation and he'd say what did you mean by that it was was you're insulting me? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't quite understand. But, well, but you know, you know you, then, if an Irish person pick... insults you, they're probably in love with you, you know? That's true. <laughs> That's true. And then you, you pick up these words sometimes in TV programs, movies, and you think, I know what that means. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's start, really nice. Heaven forbid you start saying it yourself. Likewise yeah. with you as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we, we have some, some strange meanings up in Merseyside. We say sound a lot for anything sound it could yeah. be sound it could be yeah. positive sometimes it could be negative for me i what i was very wary of in london when initially moving was the speed of my words 
Yeah. And um, yeah. <laughs> I know even after being down there for six or seven years, uh, some people really struggled. I know some colleagues actually still struggled after that. And it was something that everyone up here could understand what I was saying, what I meant. But I, I did I did struggle at times with yeah. with um, yeah. with that delivery. And it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and I was just listening to you, Gemma, before and I thought, I remember when I first met you, I thought, wow, she speaks quickly and with, a, with an <laughs> amazing accent, East London accent. But I know what she's saying. I'm, I'm so familiar with that, even though it's um, a different dialect. Um, yeah. I mean, you were speaking before, it brought back all those memories because yeah, I, I don't have many people up here that are Cockneys. <laughs> Every day we shoo them out of the, of the region. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've only been allowed in the Merseyside once. Yes. Gemma, you are troubled. So, like, I mean, come on. Oh, that was only to go to Nick's wedding. I mean, I've not been allowed back in since. <laughs> That's to do what you were to do with Nick. <laughs> the door, the door is open, but you have, you do have to um, do an entrance exam before you cross the border. Indeed, rightly so, <laughs> rightly so. Anyway, Nick, we absolutely love having our weather guests on, but what I love the most, actually, my very favorite question to ask them all is like when is that moment when was that like spark of joy that moment where you were like I don't know what I'm going to do but this is the subject I'm going to do it in where did your love of the weather come from yeah it's all it's almost like a cumulative process I think for everyone that loves the weather culminates in getting a job if you're lucky enough I think Um, but my, my very my very earliest memory of really having an interest in anything weather related was I, don't know, I think this is quite common for a lot of people in England was the um relatively rare snow days you might have at school so this must have been when I was um seven or eight years old in primary school in the sort of mid to late 90s and snow to me was an automatic ticket out of school I thought oh my god I love snow um, I didn't know anything about it at the time. It was this mysterious type of weather. And winter upon winter, I would be thinking, okay, when's the next snow happening? With Merseyside's maritime climate, it took the right con- combination of conditions to actually snow. Um, so more often than not, it was disappointing. But I was always so interested in... what I was, I was actually obsessed with wanting to know whether it was going to snow. And so in the 90s... The only information you had at your disposal was teletext and, of course, the, the television um, forecasts. But I remember teletext updated a couple of times a day and you could go to um, a page on it where it would list, list different cities across the UK and it would give you um, a five-day forecast and I think the, the minimum maximum temperature and the what we now would say is the dominant weather type through the day. And Liverpool had its own section. So you, you couldn't flick through the pages and there was about eight or nine pages to get through all the cities. And it used to be torture waiting for Liverpool to come round. And I remember the excitement of seeing HY snow or even LT snow, light snow. What I didn't appreciate at the time was that in the 90s, five-day forecast was total rubbish. <laughs> of course, it's much better now. But I remember seeing heavy snow day five brilliant Wednesday is going to be fantastic get your sledge out ready exactly yeah (laughs) 
uh, we'll drive to North Wales maybe and um, slide down some of the hills there. Wednesday comes around, it's 13 degrees and drizzle. And that was that was the sort of cycle I'd be in. Yeah. But I would check every day, teletext, when I was in was in primary school through the winter. I, I love that. Wasn't wasn't as bothered in the summer, but yeah, I that was my earliest obsession, probably with the weather. Some of my most memorable, Amazing. some of them, not all of them, but some of my most memorable night shifts with snow have included the Merseyside area, actually. <laughs> well, oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, problem with Merseyside is the marginal aspect of whether it's going to be liquid precipitation or solid precipitation. Such an awkward area. Temperatures are very difficult to to get right. And obviously that's going to be the the critical point as to whether you're going to get snow or not. And yeah, producing a forecast for upland Wales is far far easier than Merseyside. Yeah. (laughs) You say it's... um... A little tricky to get temperatures right in Merseyside, but an upland forecast is easier. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, how how you kind of learned about that in practice versus, you know, maybe in 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 school or whatever or in college? Um, yeah, sure, kind of- sure. So, I mean, I already I always had an appreciation when I was growing up that Merseyside was not a region of extremes. So, you know, we would never be desperately cold. We'd never be particularly hot um, through the seasons. But actually, I don't have too many memories of learning about the weather through school. Maybe it was a little bit in primary school, the basics of the, the different seasons and what you can expect. And of course, you know, like, like anywhere you live in the UK, you, you do have that distinction between seasons. But I don't think we ever had that extreme variation that you can see in, in other parts, um, other different climate areas of, of, of England. So I I didn't know anything different when I was growing up. It was always quite quite normal to have mild wet winters and not particularly warm summers. And then Welcome to uh, Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Well there we go. Liverpool's the island of England, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but then when I was actually you know a practicing meteorologist, I had that exposure to you know, predicting as, as, as accurate as possible various temperatures across the UK, whether it's air temperature, whether it's um, road surface temperature. And each region had its own nuances that you sort of only learnt by experience. And I, of course, already knew Merseyside, but there were many nights where the Merseyside forecast was dead easy. Um, you know, it was probably quite mild and other areas were very difficult but then there were some nights, and maybe this is what Gemma was alluding to earlier, there would be maybe a, a cold front coming across the UK, uh, bringing a high likelihood of, of snow. Maybe there was a, a weather warning for, for snow out across the UK. But the nature of Merseyside, because it has that influence of the Irish Sea and the, est- the estuaries, either side the D estuary and the Mersey estuary, um, that has a significant impact on regulating the temperature across Merseyside. Um, you have to go quite far inland to be in the winter time to be seeing low temperatures. I didn't know that growing up. Um, I, I lived on the coast growing up, so I only knew that there wasn't much variability. But actually, forecasting for Merseyside, I had a whole new appreciation of how difficult it was through through being a meteorologist. And yeah, there were lots of times where there would be a snow shower rolling in off the, the Irish Sea. It would hit the mild coast. And it would be maybe sleet. It would be 
horrible mixture of you're not, you're not entirely sure what's falling on the ground. And then to travel inland, uh, carry itself over Cheshire into Staffordshire, and it'd be giving them several centimetres of snow. You would, you would really have no idea what's going on on Merseyside unless your feet were on the ground, where you'd have much more confidence in other areas. And for me, this was a very interesting learning curve because I realised I didn't really know the climate of the area I was growing up that I thought I knew. So yeah, it was it was fascinating that that appreciation from you know from the the working side of things. You know what though? Yeah, I was going to say you as you were talking, I actually could see in my head a night. And I could see the radar vividly, and I could and see comment streaming in, moving in <laughs> the Irish Sea, and it was just relentless. And we were just sat there on a night shift, going, "When is it going to stop snowing?" It wasn't really, sp- yeah. it wasn't really supposed to snow that much, and it just snowed and snowed and snowed over Merseyside. And I can vividly see I sat there on a night shift with that radar, just brought back all of those memories just then, and that was a good, good few, ye- few years. Ago. <laughs> Do you know, actually, yeah. I quite, quite relate to everything you say as well. So my love of weather was was there as well from similar to yourself for a different, you know, similar story. But like, how do they know it's going to be warmer tomorrow, colder tomorrow? Like, how? How do they know? But actually, it's really only and even even now, like when I come across something that's new for forecasting, whether it's air quality control or something like that, anything you really until you try and do that forecast you do not get that appreciation for how tricky it is, no matter how many years experience you have with it. Mm-hmm. There's so many if, buts and maybes and what happened before and what happened, what you think is going to happen and what what's, you know, what's the current state. And it might be of the most random thing. But yeah, everything that you're saying there really, really resonates with me as well. Until you've mm. actually done it, you're like, wow. And there are some places where you're like, unless you're on the ground, you just cannot imagine what that front is going to look like when it comes through. And I think that, you know, you, you can have 30 years experience under your belt. I think you always need to be prepared to be surprised with the weather, mm-hmm. especially with the variability that we see in the UK as well. It's, um, um, I remember someone saying that our meteorologist colleagues on the continent actually sometimes have an easier job of it um, at, at parts of the year because mm-hmm. the weather's more clear cut, it's more stable, whereas we've got to deal with several different influences across the uk so it's yeah it, it's a challenge that i think is underestimated yeah for sure and and i've said this many times but it's one of the reasons why i just think the uk climate is probably one of the most technical but incredible climates to forecast for so we may not have like gigantic hurricanes or storms which i'm thankful for but at the same time to actually pin down the exact detail of something Talking about storms as well, you just um, triggered another, I would say, very key part of my love of the weather and curiosity, I would say. So when I was in university, I went with my my friend's family to, to Florida and uh, there were all the thunderstorms building up over the peninsula and it was absolutely fascinating. Never seen anything like it. And several years before, I'd been with my family to Florida Uh, This was in 2005, and I was there when Hurricane Katrina crossed the uh, the south of the peninsula and through the Gulf of Mexico into New Orleans, and we were watching it. I was glued to the Weather Channel at the time. It was was absolutely fascinating. You know, they had reporters on the ground, extremely brave, I don't know, maybe stupid reporters in, you know, almost in the eye of the hurricane, 
and they were going through all the different models they had the 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 live radar that I think updated every 15 minutes and it was so clear that there was a monster of a storm it was going to cause destruction loss of life it was it was going to be awful and seeing it unfold I couldn't help but being in awe and thinking I, I need to know more about this so I, I learned about hurricanes after that I, I remember doing a, a master's course in meteorology and climatology and um, I think one of the 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 lecturers there said, well, you know, what, what's people on, people's ambitions for this, after this course? And I said, I want to go and work in the National Hurricane Centre in Florida. That's mine as well. Yeah. That was and, mine. Um, <laughs> it's funny how, how things change, isn't it? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there, there is a deep interest that I think only a certain number of us really have. Um, I, think, I think a lot of people have an interest in the weather. But deep curiosity to want to know more. I think that what's what makes being a meteorologist perfect. It's all, it, it is almost like a big vocation, isn't it? Yeah. Oh God, yeah. I sit on one night shift. I need that's a vocation. <laughs> it, that no, seriously, like honestly, mm. this you know that I completely relate to everything you're saying. I, I completely agree. You can love the weather, and it's beautiful to love the weather. It's beautiful to love it, but to keep working and to keep delving and to keep chipping away at different aspects of it and know that if for some reason you couldn't do the part that you're doing at the time, you would go and find another part that you could work at. Yeah. It says and just keep learning as well. Just like, keep learning, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I learned something new today. I was reading a, reading the study today about climate change and I learned something new that I didn't know either. And I was like, it's so interesting. There's so do much share. to learn. Oh, put me on the spot now it was a um a study to say that apparently due to the fact that the climate is getting warmer um, and due to climate change they um expecting that the storms over there's going to be more sort of intense slow moving storms over europe and so there's going to be more issues with flooding because yeah. the, the storms over europe for example are just going to be more slow moving so you get more rainfall yeah. locally in a yeah. short space of time gosh wow yeah Anyway, Nick, we haven't even got what you do now. Oh yeah, honestly, I feel like I'm I'm kind of I'm taking this emotional journey with you as you're talking. I'm like I so relate to what you're saying. But tell us a little bit about what you do now. So I know, oh gosh, I mean, you're you have to be a jack of all trades when you're a meteorologist, as in a jack of all meteorological trades. But what do you actually do now? Tell us about what parts you enjoy about it the most and what it's used for. Sure. Yeah. So. After being a meteorologist for six and a half years, I think it was, part of moving out of London and back to Liverpool, um, and said I did have to give the job up. But, you know, that meant that there, was a, there would be a new opportunity. So um, just at the same time, the, the Environment Agency were recruiting um, as part of what was a modelling and forecasting team, which I thought sounded maybe similar to what I might, I might do or my, my skill set. Fortunately, I'd, I... I got a job with the with the EA, um, so I've been there almost three years now. So the team I joined uh, was a team that, in the most basic sense, models rivers. So we build and also quality assure other models that other people have built, models that have been built for the, for the purpose of, for example, flood mapping, trying to ascertain the flood risk in certain parts of the UK, for a variety of reasons, maybe there needs to be a flood warning uh, because that, that particularly part of the community is susceptible to flooding. So we need to have a way of alerting them uh, during a flood event. 
it may be that maybe a community next to a river doesn't currently have any mapping. They have no idea what, what kind of risk they're in. So for maybe for insurance purposes, um, they need to know, is this river next to me going to affect my premiums over the next few years? And also the, there's a development side of things. So uh, we need to know on floodplains exactly what is the flood risk, the extents and the depths, the velocities of the flow. Um, so that if someone, for whatever reason, wants to uh, build on a floodplain, is that appropriate? And do we need to make any recommendations? So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm part of like a technical team that gets into the nuts and bolts of a model. And so when I describe models, this, this is actually very different than atmospheric models. Atmospheric models, uh, we had a few suppliers that we could take output from and compare against, and we could, we could create a weather story. Um, it, it, similar in some ways with rivers, that we can use different types of software, but ultimately it's, it's, it's all the same, very similar. So to build a flood model, you need to go out into the field and take some cross-section survey data, literally sticking poles into the ground um, to, to sort of get a profile of the bed. And you get lots of these different profiles. Um, it's got some survey data. You, you can build it in software to get a representation of the riverbed from one place to the next, wherever your site is, wherever, wherever you're interested in. Um, let's say, for, for example, in London, you might be interested in a particular part next to the Thames. And then you need to decide, well, how much flow do I need to put down the river to be able to ascertain the flood risk? And that can be the hardest part because it's, um, it's described as more of an art than a skill. It's not definitive. We have a lot of guidance that we can um, use to estimate flows through rivers because that's all what we're doing. We're modeling, we're simulating reality. We can use the characteristics of the catchment. So is it upland? Is it quite flat? Um, is the ground permeable? What part of the UK is it? Because there's a huge amount of variability in the amount of rainfall that one, one part gets to the next. And you combine all these different characteristics um, and we have a, we have a programme that can uh, determine a flow. And at the end of it, after doing all the analysis, some very complex analysis, which I, I'm still learning about, <laughs> you, come, you come up with a range of flows, which we call return periods. So there might be a one in two year design flow. That, that would mean that this river level is reached every two years or every other year. Or you can get a more extreme event, a one in a hundred year flood. Self-explanatory, it's, it's rarer. You're expecting it to, to occur once every century. Um, so obviously the lower the return period, i.e. the greater magnitude of events, um, the more flow we are putting down this model. Um, so it's so important to get that flow right. And we can use um, our existing network of gauges on the rivers that can tell us through, through history what the levels have been to sort of calibrate our models against. And we can say, okay, yeah, the flow we've determined is completely inappropriate because it doesn't really match what the, the gauge is at this site. Um, and you can sort of move the, the, your, your estimated levels up and down. So after you combined the hydrology with what we call the hydraulics so you know is the bed made of sand is it made of rock you know that will all impact on how quickly the, the, the water can flow down this simulated river at the end of it all you will come out with a 1d 2d model of water leaving a channel uh traveling across the floodplain and 
maybe staying on the floodplain or coming back into the river at lower points. And that is the output that we use for all the flood mapping and the flood warning services that the Environment Agency provides. So, so yeah, my team basically makes sure that all the decision-making that's gone into the modelling is correct because just one small decision, let, let's say we didn't estimate the amount of vegetation correctly on a bank, that can impact how much water is modelled coming out of the river. And it can mean that our, that our results are completely wrong. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting switch from what I used to do because I used to try and forecast everything that was in the air and now I'm really, really interested in what's on the ground but cannot do what we do without knowing how much rainfall we can expect because ultimately that's going to be the main driver of flooding across the UK especially more from a river basin perspective. I feel like I've just been listening to what I might say to somebody about how a uh, weather computer model is put together it's incredibly <laughs> complicated so you've got you've yeah. got you've got rainfall you've got the ground type source yep. but that doesn't like how far so I know a computer weather model goes from actually the you know the more modern ones take into account um you know uh, a cross between ocean and atmosphere but yeah. in a river how far down do you actually go in terms of you know, uh, so, you know, the natural water table, how, you know, how far below that do you actually have to consider flooding? And also, how on earth do you manage to do your work if somebody builds a new housing estate? How, how do you, how does that work? I don't even, I can't even imagine <laughs> how, how do you then determine all your new yeah. rates of everything? Yeah, so models are updated all the time purely because land use changes over time. So maybe some rural areas, um, like you say, but may become more urbanized. And that hugely affects the amount of runoff you might have. Or if you think about a hydrograph, which is the, the flow over time, that can be substantially changed if the, if the, the land use is now different. So yeah, we have, we have models that were built 10 years ago that were great for the time, but aren't as relevant anymore. So we, we, what we do is we use LIDAR data, uh, like remote sensing data, to, to determine some land use because um, the, the resolution nowadays is, is great and read it down to half a meter, I think. So you can pick out individual buildings and we can give it different classifications. So we can update models fairly straightforward in a fairly straightforward way. But, but like you sort of alluded to, it's, it's a constant thing. We, we need to keep on top of are our models accurate enough for their purpose and yeah it's um it's it's a very interesting field to be in from that perspective because in some ways your work is never ending and and yeah i i completely forgot i should have talked about my real-time aspect of the job as well so about 10 percent of my time at the environment agency i have a what we call the duty role so it's like incident response um so whenever the or any conditions that might result in flooding, I will be on what's called duty and will uh, liaise with the Flood Forecasting Centre, which is a partnership with the Met Office, um, to analyse the, the amount of rainfall they might be expecting, or it might be the tide level for coastal flooding, and determine, given the current state of the catchments, you know, is it dry? Is it 
I think saturated. Are we, you know, we have it, even have a small drop of rain. Are we going to have any problems? We need to do all this analysis and decide whether river levels are going to rise enough in certain parts of England to produce any flooding. And it's so important to get those warnings out with good lead time because sometimes, you know, people need to evacuate quite quickly in some severe circumstances. One of my memories I was discussing with someone today was, you might remember a couple of years ago, the summer of uh, 2019, um, in Whaley Bridge in Derbyshire, there was a, a reservoir that was starting to fail, uh, was starting to breach. Um, there was a real concern that there was just going to be a catastrophic failure. And so that's, a, that's, that's an extreme example of where a flood warning, an emergency flood warning needs to kick in immediately. We make, need to make sure we take action. But, you know, throughout the year, we, you know, we, we're going to have issues with flooding. It's, it's by no means a winter problem. Um, like this week, we've had thunderstorms and we've had flooding across parts of, um, I think, especially uh, the southeastern quarter of, of England the recent days. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a constant theme. And actually, when I'm doing this real-time duty role, it completely takes me back to, to being a meteorologist because suddenly I'm not... I'm not doing modeling for hypothetical situations. It's, it's happening. It's raining. Um, I need to decide, um, is this rainfall going to cause any issues? But one reflection I would have of flood forecasting compared to, um, let's take um, road surface temperature forecasting, for example, is that you do have that bit more time to react. So, you know the rain's falling. You can you can see it falling. Um, sometimes in thunderstorms, it, it's more difficult. But especially in the winter time, when you have frontal situations, steady rainfall, the river the river levels may be rising at quite a predictable rate, and you know the thresholds where a flood alert or flood warning will be issued. Um, you can be very proactive in getting that out, and a sort of degree of comfort, um, if that makes sense, to be able to get the warning out. Whereas I remember. Being a meteorologist and having complete shock at how <laughs> conditions can change so quickly. Um, maybe there'd be a lightning strike from a shower. I would not have expected a lightning strike from. Or maybe the wind gusts were 20 miles an hour stronger than I was expecting um, at one of our weather stations and suddenly you have to um, update a customer. And it would come completely out of the blue. And I don't think I'll ever forget that sort of being on edge um, side of things. And I think that's sort of served me well for this role now because I want ne- I'll just never rest until I know yeah. um, that a situation has been resolved and I'll never, I'll always be expected to be surprised, I guess. I love that. I love that. I just want to, I just want to pick up on one thing that you said there, actually. Um, I think it's something that, um, so I've kind of been on a few different sides of my job for a different, different reasons. So, uh like for example when I was aviation forecasting if there was a strong windstorm you don't want people if you're doing like military stuff it's an opportunity to actually do other things and you you know you want them to ground and it's 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 a little bit predictable um to a degree but Mm. what I hadn't fully appreciated was working in public weather is actually 
in order for all of those warnings to go out on time, like you're not just alerting the public, you are alerting people who are going to help the public. And that is more important than in a way, not more important, that sounds perhaps the wrong use of words, but to having those responders in place where they need to be ready to help people is just as important. So when you get a knock on the door and they say, we think your house is going to flood. Somebody's like, what are you talk about? I don't see any water. It's actually quite important to have that lead time that you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes you do have the luxury of lead time and you can, um, so there's, there's a the service you can sign up for where you get uh, text alerts. And obviously there's the, the television broadcasts, which um, I'm, I'm sure Ash, um, you know, you, you, probably presented some broadcasts where there have been flood warnings in effect. Um, and it's all about getting that message across effectively. But it's all best endeavours, isn't it? Sometimes we have conditions where, you know, the ground's completely saturated. Any rainfall you have um, may cause river levels to rise almost before you can react. Um, we actually have um, a part of uh, the region that I look after in, in Yorkshire. We have a valley called the Calder Valley. So the Calder River um, flows through a very, very typical V-shaped, quite steep-sided uh, valley. And of course, you get run off so quickly and straight into the river through the middle. The river levels can rise there so quickly that they actually have an air raid siren to warn the residents. It's quite rare that it goes off. And in fact, um, we do have to test it you know, every, every so often. But yeah, the, the, there's a the, there's that distinctive, almost like wartime signal. Um, but it, but it has to be shocking sometimes to be able to get that instant warning out to people. Um, I think that's the only part of the UK where they have that. Um, I may be mistaken on that, but mm. um, I remember starting the job quite early and being told about that and thinking, "Blimey, that must be awful." to hear, let's say overnight, if there's heavy rain and you, you need to take immediate action, whether it's evacuating, whether it's um, putting crucial items um, away from the ground floor or looking after others if you, if you know they, they need help. Um, so I thought I always thought that was uh, quite humbling, actually, to, to know that those kind of situations exist. And yeah, I, I had no idea that that, that kind of warning existed. Um, but it, it, go, it goes to show that in the UK, we have a need for that kind of warning in some circumstances because the weather can be so extreme. Yeah, and I suppose it's when, when you're thinking about flooding as well, you have to remember that you're not just thinking about what's happening now, you have to think about what's happened beforehand. So if we've had a really wet month and then we have further rain, then that's just going to exacerbate the risk of flooding. So it's not just now time, it's also thinking about what has happened before and what the what the ground is like, like you say, if it's saturated and whether the the mm. ground can take more water or whether it's it just going to run off and run straight into the rivers and cause them to rise. Yeah, that's right. And even after a, a incredibly dry spell, um, I'm thinking about, you know, summertime weather here, you know, if the, if the, if the ground is like a desert, suddenly it, it cannot actually absorb the water that's thrown at it. So you get a thunderstorm over, over, over dry ground. Um, you get rapid runoff and, and flooding when you would almost least expect it. So it's almost like you, you don't want it to be very dry. You don't want it to be very wet. You want to exist in that sort of middle ground. But of course, it, it just doesn't work like that, unfortunately. It's, actually, it's interesting as well. It's the same as well when the ground is frozen. 
mm. you know it's the same thing happens as well it's um yes it can yeah. be it can be really difficult and also yeah and, and like you were saying you know earlier on in the podcast until you actually start working in the nitty-gritty of that you're like god that's a really complicated yeah really quite and, complicated. Um, I, it, it, as soon as you mentioned the word frozen then it also reminded me that um another consideration i'd never had is that some of our large historical floods have happened well after the precipitations occurred because it's been the snowpack that's melted. And, uh, you know, you can have significant volumes of liquid melting within a few hours, all goes into the river system. And you're thinking, where did that come from? You know, it wasn't raining or snowing in the, in the past 48 hours or maybe 72 hours. And that can really uh, be a difficult thing to forecast because we really have no um, accurate way of knowing what that capacity is in snow. If you think about the all the high ground in northern England, the Yorkshire Moors, um, other parts of the Pennines, the the Wolds, those can be completely snow covered at times in the winter. You know, lovely uh, satellite images, a hell of a lot of water being held mm. in them. So, what we're really mindful of from the flood forecasting point of view is a cold spell with lots of snowpack followed by. Um, quite an aggressive warm front coming in and, and introducing um, significantly higher temperatures because that can be very problematic from from flooding. Yeah, I guess that's the one thing as well you were sort of alluded to earlier with meteorology is so I know obviously we have a certain amount of hind casting as Gemma you were saying about like how much water's fallen etc. But actually with river forecasting, so hydrometeorology, your thunderstorm may have cleared, but actually your river may not reach capacity for 48 hours so you know all of that water that's gone into the mountain has well depending on where it is has its own journey to make before it reaches the river and actually sometimes your problems don't just stop with the rain it's very much later on that's right um and it actually shows the importance of having um a good distribution of gauges on the river network as well, uh, very much like weather. Um, if you don't have that data, then you're not going to produce a good forecast. Um, if you don't know what's going on, how can you follow the story through time? So, so yeah, it's, it's really important that we have a number of gauges in some of our upland areas because they're so good at retaining that water or maybe only gradually cascading the water through the, the various tributaries and, and all the different channels that exist in upland areas. Um, at some point, they're all going to converge. And you're right, that, that lag time to the peak river level can be a matter of days, um, especially for some of our larger river systems and, and the, the downstream reaches. So the volumes of water that come down that way are scary. You know, you, you, you think about the Thames, how wide is that through through London? Um, and when the tide's out and the, the flow is um, from west to east, you think, where on earth did that water come from? <laughs> and it could, be, it could be the middle of summer and you might not have had uh, rain for a few days and it's still making its way through um, all the source regions. So, so yeah, it's, um, it's, you, you've got to keep yourself on your toes and you've got to make sure you're resilient from a forecasting perspective not just during the rainfall events, but for several days afterwards. And actually, through some times, especially in the winter, the event just never ends. You know, you, you, have, you have top of rainfall events 
see suddenly you, you had elevated river levels and they may may reduce a little bit. The next front comes in from the west and you're back to square one. Mm. Um, and it can it can be all the way through till the end of the winter until you return to what we call base flow conditions when you're at, you're at that comfortable level where you're maybe not in an um, immediate threat of river levels rising. And it can be exhausting, you know. Um, it's, it's a really important aspect of well-being as well. You've got to make sure that from a forecasting perspective that you're not committing yourself all the time. And it doesn't matter whether it's flood forecasting, doesn't matter whether it's weather forecasting, the winter time can be tough. And I think we all know that from our experience. Yeah, for sure. Sure is, sure is. So, so interesting. There's so much to think about. And there's so many mm. things that you've said that maybe I didn't really think about before, or maybe I, I knew from doing a geography degree, but you sort of forget little things. And as you were talking, I was thinking there's so many things that all have to come into force and you have to know about so many things to get mm. to where you're expected to be in terms of modeling or issuing warnings it's just it's so interesting it is yeah and just just one thing that i also had to learn very quickly was that flooding is not just fluvial it's not just in in the river you can have beautiful september um, week high pressure overview you can have a very high set of spring tides on the coast you have glorious weather and you can have a significant flood risk, even if the, 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 there's no waves and the conditions appear calm. I think about Hull, the area of Hull. I think there's a, there's a high percentage of that city that's actually under sea level. And if the Hull barrier wasn't there, um, there'll be several times a year that it would flood. Again, I, I didn't have much appreciation of this before I entered the sort of um, flood forecasting world. But, um, but yeah, it's... Um, it's fascinating the amount of things you have to consider. Yeesh, so I won't be going into flood forecasting. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with pointing for the moment. <laughs> uh, so Nick, this time is just flying by. So we're actually going to jump onto our newly named, not quick fire round, but Gemma has renamed it because I asked too many questions. Perfect. I had to rename it to the get to know me round. So we'll get going. Your favourite season? Winter. Why? <gasps> no one said that yet. No one said well, that before. My birthday's in December. Um, mm. I love snow. Uh, you need to, Makes you need sense, to actually. put the dots together from the information you've been given this podcast, please, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise that the, the get to know me realm was actually going to be a test for how much me and Ash know no. you. And I know. I know. I'd <laughs> no. have to like, be really I, super keen on listening next time. I think I, think I just love you know, birthday, Christmas, are oh, we going to get snow in the winter? Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm. It's actually for me, it's a clear winner. Yeah. So the next question is your favourite cloud. Favourite cloud has to be cumulonimbus, uh, especially the type you get over the Florida Peninsula. Ah, <laughs> really? Super specific. Yeah, the, the, I like the, it. Sort of the alternate sea breeze convergence over the, uh, the the spine of the peninsula. Yeah, they're fascinating to watch develop. Oh, that's lovely. That's really nice. Tea or coffee? Tea. Yeah. I tea knew that is, you'd say that, but I had to Yeah, ask. yeah. It's, um, I like a coffee, limit myself to maybe one a day. Sometimes I don't have any days, but even, we were discussing this today in work, actually, even in hot weather, it's not acceptable not to have a tea. Socially, I agree. I agree. Completely. I yeah. mean, you've hit, hit on a really important social point there. 
<laughs> that reminds me actually we were chatting to john who came on to talk about his time in antarctica and he said that he actually thought that you made a better cup of tea than me which i disagree okay. with it got a little bit heated because i did win the yeah. award for best tea maker but you do make a good uh, cup of tea yes Gemma's i remember that award spicy sound london came out and I had to calm things down did me this 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 tea award in question, I remember it was a it was a contentious one because I, I'd already been given an award that night, so it was it was unfair to award two. Um outrageous. But take that but back. I think I think what, what I would say as a furnished gender is um I've never had a complaint from a cup of tea you've made me. They were they were always ten out of ten. Oh, thank you. You do ah. make a good cup of tea as well, Nick. I... <laughs> Just both of us together. We're just listen to this mutual tea love. (laughs) Um, You know, there are lots of poor tea makers out there, so it it is a skill. There Um, is. My rule is: if I'm making you a cup of tea, I want to know exactly how you want it because if you're like me or anyone else who's busy, it may be the only one you've get, the only one you've had. Mm -hmm. You may not have had your morning one, so if someone's going to hand you it, it may as well be perfect. I remember that tea chart that we had we had a little tea chart and it showed you the different (laughs) colours of tea and people would mark which ones they were yep and there were were certain individuals where whatever you requested it it always came back differently Um, (laughs) and I'm not ashamed to admit that I sometimes declined an offer even (gasps) if I wanted a cup of tea just because I couldn't face it well two things are happening there either that person is very clever Oh yeah, that's, and that's they probably, did it on purpose. That's probably right. Yeah, but also, I'm grieving for you for not having had that tea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, to be fair, the the rate of consumption at, at our old company, um, it wasn't healthy. So I probably didn't need that tea at the time. <laughs> well, we we drank a lot of tea. There was lots yeah, of cups of tea that got made. <laughs> okay, back to the get to know me, not quick fire round. Jamie Dodgers or Jaffa cakes? Oh, Jaffa cakes. Good job. Yeah, Any I love, love Jaffa. Um, I think for me, jammy dodgers are sometimes not worth the effort. The 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 crumb spillage, they're very susceptible to going off maybe a day or so after opening the packet. <gasps> whereas, of course, uh, it's one of your five a day having a um I've just forgotten. What 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 was the other option? Jaffa cake. Jaffa cake. I had a complete. <laughs> An utter mental block. Like that I is all called. I could, all we're talking about Jaffa cakes. How much that, you love them? No, that, that, that's called that, being a new parent, Nick. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's yeah, the apparent brain right there. Yeah. No, no, Jaffa cakes. Uh, one of your certified. One of your five a day, of course. So, so yeah, I I love it. Yeah. I really wish people could see mine and Ash's faces. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you both have the same face where we were just Shock. in disbelief of what you were saying. That's and not true, and, and that is also not health advice. I want to put a disclaimer on. <laughs> <laughs> if you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Oh, I would say I would be a courgette because versatile. You can put up lots of things. Um, this is a good answer. It's resilient. It'll stay in your fridge for... I would I'd say you could eke out a good three weeks with a courgette in the fridge. Yeah, I agree. Um, and um, I would say a lot of people love it. If they don't love it, they're not worth knowing. 
<gasps> wow, strong, powerful, <laughs> and you know, I I am I am convinced by the conviction. Great answer, Nick. It was a good answer. <laughs> Your answers so far have been brilliant, Nick. They really have. It's mm. like it's like you've managed to think about them before we've asked you them, which we I have. No, I, I will <laughs> say I've not been supplied with the questions prior to this podcast. Myself and Gemma were supplied with the questions. <laughs> no, I have a list of questions here and I just pick them as we go along and I choose the ones I want to ask. So I don't even know which one I'm going to ask until I look down at the bit of paper. <laughs> so we'll go to the bit of paper and I'll just pick another random one. Have you got a hidden talent? Hidden talents. Well, you know me, Gemma. I like to talk about my talents. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> not, not shy in showing off. So uh, I wouldn't say they were particularly hidden, but... Um, this is something John, again, mentioning his name could attest to. I'm pretty good at badminton. <gasps> I love badminton. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great sport, isn't it? Mm, Gets a bad rap, but I, I, I love it. Love it. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I miss our games at badminton. I'm not very good at badminton, but it was, it used to be good fun. Nice way to de-stress after a busy, busy shift. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of uh, release, isn't it? Yep. Have you got a go-to snack when you're on shift? Yes, although it's changed. So, okay. uh, Micho Grief, I had a fairly poor diet at the start of that. I don't think I barely drank much water on night shift. Pop a few ready meals in. And then I changed probably year three, year, year four into, into Micho Grief to, to having more healthy snacks like carrot sticks and hummus, uh, maybe some veggie couscous with, with courgette, of course. And then... When I've done a few night shifts, uh, they've actually been from home because of, um, you know, the, the COVID working since I've been at the environment agency. So then it's been pretty much whatever's in my fridge. Um, but I do have an appreciation of mixed nuts. I think they're a great stomach filler because the hunger pangs on night shifts are awful. You just mm-hmm. want to snack and snack and snack. Whereas I found nuts, um, as well as being healthy in moderation, are great at filling you up as well. So um, I would say going forward, get, grab yourself a bag of mixed nuts. I was actually just munching on some today in work. I was starving and I really wanted to go to our vending machine, but <laughs> had mixed nuts left over from a recent purchase of the exact same conversation you've had there. Mm. And I had them and it does take away the hunger and I didn't need anything then till my dinner. <laughs> Good going. We've got a couple of more questions. So three more questions. So... Fingers for toes or toes for fingers? I had to to take a minute processing that then, Gemma. Um, (laughs) I literally didn't understand that question. The first time she asked me, I was like, I don't get it. (laughs) So you wouldn't be surprised to know I've never thought of this question before in my life. (laughs) Not many people have when we ask them. (laughs) I I think I would really struggle with toes for fingers, you know, with the dexterity. So um, I would have to say, Claw feet is the way forward. <laughs> Love it. I think that's the only way really to go yeah. with that question. It's yeah. the only, only suitable answer, really, I think. If you could invite anybody to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any time, who would you invite? Oh, wow. Wow. I think I would have to say, um, and by the way, I where I currently live in Liverpool is just down the road from where he grew up. Um, I would have to say John Lennon. Um, it, it, may, it may be a little bit of an obvious one, but he is such an interesting character. Mm. His perspective on the world, 
Um, I think also having that experience of growing up on Merseyside. Uh, by the way, I have to be very careful to say I didn't grow up in Liverpool. I grew up in the Wirral. Um, if I said I grew up in Liverpool, I'd be chased out of Liverpool. Um, so yeah, we could. Um, I'm sure we could talk a lot about the city. Um, I'd, I'd love to know what's in his mind. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to have dinner with John Lennon. That would be a great dinner. Be oh great. yeah, great answer. And our final question is one thing that you wish everybody knew about the weather. Oh gosh, there would be so many things I could say for this. Um, I would like people to know actually how complex it is to forecast and how many different sources you have to look at to decide in your mind what the most likely scenario is. You know, the the background analysis you have to do, it's not just reading off what's on a computer screen. The appreciation of not trusting the data that's in front of you. If people had that understanding, I don't think they would complain as much about forecasters getting it wrong, uh, which is an awful phrase. We never get it wrong because you can never get it right. I think that's the that's the take home. Here, here. Well, there you go. That's a great, that's answer. A great answer. Absolutely. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for answering all of those questions. They were a little bit quicker than normal, but actually you've answered them so well. I didn't need to ask any more questions. It's my problem. <laughs> So well prepared. Um, <laughs> we also like to leave as well at the end of the episode with just like a little bit of weather wisdom. So perhaps something that um people didn't know before. Uh so an example is Red Sky at Night Shepherd's Delight. So Nick, would you like to give us uh, weather wisdom for this episode? I would love to. This is hopefully very relevant for the conditions of this past week. So over a particular high temperature, which is around 28 degrees Celsius, pollen becomes increasingly less active. And so hopefully any hay fever sufferers shouldn't be suffering as much in the heat compared to lower temperatures. That's mad because you often think of like a warm spell of weather and you think, oh, like depending on the time of year, like pollen's going to explode. So I myself am a tree pollen gal and a weed pollen gal. And actually i didn't know that that's really interesting so it yeah, must yeah. be like warm and dry but then maybe when it gets above a certain point it, 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 i always think look to nature to see mm-hmm. what to do and actually i shouldn't be above 28 degrees i'm not designed for it so i think actually you know pollen knows what it's doing i feel extremely lucky not to be a hay fever sufferer um because i i know people that have and it looks awful I'm I'm just very thankful that I don't have to go through that every spring and summer. Um, so yeah, yeah. solidarity with the hay fever sufferers. Out I there. didn't suffer until I came here, and then it's kind of got worse year and year. And then, um, the few years I was in Hampshire, they they grow a lot of rapeseed around there, and I definitely have an aversion to rapeseed. But interestingly, most of your cooking oil is rapeseed, but I don't react to the cooking oil. It's just the raw, the raw form of it. But I, I don't know whether that kind of accelerated it or not. But anyway, that's really interesting. I'm exactly the same. I only actually have a, a bit of an allergy to rapeseed. If I'm in a field of rapeseed. Oh, my which, God. I'm like, oh, just, oh, oh yeah. I scratch my eyes out. Yeah, it's really, really but bad. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nick. That was, oh, it was such a great chat. And it's uh, lovely to have 
be able to catch up as well after so long it feels um, like it yeah. was a bit of an emotional chat as well I really enjoyed it it was very I really yeah it was yeah cool. like it was really like touched me I was like I really relate to a lot of that you really do love the weather it's um it's funny because you know I have left the weather world but I still check those charts every day it will never actually leave that personal interest I have so this has been actually really, really nice to, to come on and chat to you guys about it. It's, it's been great sort of going into those archives of my mind and the experiences I've had because I don't, I, I, I don't think about it as much anymore, but it's really, really nice to chat about it. Yeah, I was just thinking about, so we've obviously all worked together for years, and but on shift, you don't really have a lot of time to sit and talk about your love of weather or how you actually got into it. Yeah. And actually being mm. able to talk to you about it on this podcast was super interesting and I learned stuff about you that I didn't know before and yeah me too so I'm actually really grateful that we we were able to chat yeah. to you and learn a bit more this evening as well thank you yeah. for joining us that has been yeah it's been it feels a bit special tonight it was lovely I really Great. enjoyed it thank you we really hope that everyone else listening has enjoyed it as well if you have we would love it if you would subscribe rate and review the podcast share it as well with anyone that you think that might like to have a little listen uh, you can of course find us on social media we are on instagram and on tiktok we are for the love of weather on both of those platforms and on twitter we are the number four love of weather and as always we really hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more thanks so much for joining us thanks to nick and thank you to everybody for listening Bye-bye. bye bye